This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, the Proceedings Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. So we just finished a week of talking to the class of 2025, the plebes in the middle of plebe summer, as we normally do. We didn't do it last summer because of COVID. But the thing that was kind of special this year is we hosted them in the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center. It was the first official use of the auditorium. Yeah, it was awesome. It was awesome. And a game changer. We've been saying for a while now that the 406-seat uh, auditorium is acoustically perfect, and it was very cool to test that and see as either you or I were up on the stage uh, presenting the brief to the to the plebes, uh, if whoever was sitting in the back could hear word for word without a microphone on our part, right? It was just, it's such a nice facility. It's such a beautiful facility. The plebes were comfortable. They were awed by it. Uh, and then just to be able to present a briefing in a 400-seat auditorium without the need for an audit, uh, for a microphone was very cool. Yes, it was great. Um, as you said, they were they were odd. You know, we made a, a good first impression, which is something uh, we, as we know from checkout day, that we've been challenged uh, with respect to them remembering who we are. You know, over the course of their four years here, we have a n- number of initiatives. And now that we're back to the non-COVID environment, Delta variant notwithstanding, um, we're, uh, we're, we're back to interfacing with the brigade uh, directly. And that includes, we have hosted uh, interns all summer. We've mentioned this on the show before. The third block just showed up uh, on Monday of this week. Our second block finished, did a great job. Our second block included the first non-Naval Academy midshipman. We had a uh, sophomore from the University of Maryland, Baltimore campus. And uh, it's great to have him, and we hope to have more NROTC midshipmen in the future. But the internship is going great, so we're always happy to have them in our midst, and it's great to have them back. Well, why don't we introduce our guest? Yeah, let's do it. So uh, this is a continuation of the American Sea Power Project. We've now up to uh, uh, episode seven, if you will, in the August issue of the magazine. The author is Professor Sally Payne from the Naval War College in Newport. Uh, Her article is titled Maritime Solutions to Continental Conundrums. It starts on pages 44 and 45 of the August issue of the magazine. And uh, joining us from Newport is Professor Payne. Uh, Sally, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so your article draws a pretty stark line between the way maritime nations and continental powers view the world. Can you describe the difference for our listeners? Sure. Great land powers like Russia and China have numerous neighbors who tend to be their greatest security threat simply because they have the ability to walk right across the border and cause trouble. And that countries 
like Russia and China, don't have a protective sea barrier, at least not around much of their border. And such an environment requires a large army. If you're going to have a large army of the size necessary to protect a country that big, you're going to have to mobilize a good deal of your economy to support it. So you've got to have a government that's going to be willing to prioritize guns over butter. And if you look at it historically, it means when in peacetime, you've got a very large army presence in the capital. And often such presence will predispose centralized control over the economy so that when the army needs it, the, the uh, wherewithal is there. Over the course of human history, continental powers are simply the norm. This is, if you look at the great empires and civilizations of Eurasia, they're continental uh, empires, uh, powers at their basis. And if you look at the really great ones, they tend to expend outward until they reach pretty formidable geographic barriers that protect themselves. But these barriers insulate them from the sea. It's very different from a maritime power where the ocean is protecting them and they're insulated by the sea. But these places, the sea can't even get to them. So if you look at Europe, in contrast, Europe's a big peninsula. It's crisscrossed with a really robust river system. Unlike Russia and China, oceanic trade has been a figured, has loomed large in European economies for a long, long time, since ancient times. And of course, Britain has the best maritime position of Europe with its 360 degree, you can't get me no moat, which allowed Britain basically to dispense with a large army because if it had a big enough navy, no one was gonna get to Britain to cause problems. And this led to a completely different economic orientation that was all about making money from trade uh, and where, where power is ultimately going to be a function of how much money you can make from industry and commerce and trade, whereas in the land power world, it's, your power is all about territory and insulating yourself from other people. So if you look at Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping today, uh, they seem to seem to look at power as a function of territory and they're busy running around invading their neighbors and they seem to see international relations as zero sum either i get it or you get it and this is a classical continental spheres of uh, influence approach to the world but since the industrial revolution which revolutions revolutionizes not only production but also transport the West has pioneered a positive sum global order in which we all trade in security and compound wealth together. And this has listed, lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And with the containerization of trade and the development of super ships, transport costs by sea have plummeted, making the possibilities for way, uh, wealth on things that are going landward versus seaborne even more skewed than they were in the past. And this growth then took off with the end of the Cold War, when the Soviet Union and China no longer were funding insurgencies around the world, disrupting everything. The only way to keep the growth compounding is to share the oceans. Any other solution is expensive because it involves fighting people. China, however, has not reached that conclusion. So we have our work cut out for us. Your article references a 66, 70, 80, 90, 99 rule. So I'll repeat that for the audience because I know uh, numbers and figures are, are generally uh, anathema to, to radio or podcast. But so the rule is uh, 66, 70, 80, 90, 99. What do the numbers mean? 
Okay, I chose the numbers because it's catchy, even if you can't remember the numbers. But what they show is why oceans are key to our prosperity, something that very few of us fully appreciate. So let me, and where they come from is, is a think tank article in 2020 by a Swedish Navy captain. And I basically just uh, rearranged his prose, but it's from his article. A two thirds, this is a 66%, two thirds of global wealth comes from either in the sea itself or on the coast near the sea. So that's two thirds of wealth. 70% of our globe is made up of water, oceans and things. 80% of all of us live on the coast. 90% of the goods that we all receive come by sea. 99% of international digital traffic goes by submarine cable. Now to simplify all this, in other words, the oceans are critical to our prosperity. Our credit cards make purchases the world over that arrive on schedule at our doorsteps at agreed prices because navies prevent piracy. Not something that most people even consider. Until the ever given goes sideways in the Suez Canal. <laughs> that, that, that can cause a hiccup. Suddenly we all care. <laughs> um, so I want to read a paragraph for our listeners uh, from your article. Quote, where land powers see territory to be taken, maritime powers see markets to make money. And while land powers divide the world into competing exclusive zones, sea powers desire commons. The land power imperative for insulation from the world versus the sea power appetite for global access is a second distinguishing characteristic from these two discriminators, the inability or ability to defend by sea and the desire for open or closed seas arise two mutually exclusive visions of global order and a source of much conflict. So a couple of years ago, that's the end of the quote. A couple of years ago, the Naval Institute hosted a conference here at the Naval Academy called the New China Challenge. And Graham Allison from Harvard, the author of the Thucydides Trap, didn't offer a lot of optimism about the prospects of war between the United States and China. Where do you fall on the optimism, pessimism scale regarding the potential for conflict with China in the coming years? China is at war with us. It has been for quite some time. But we only came to this very unpleasant realization recently. In 1999, two uh, People's Liberation Army colonels published a book entitled Unrestricted Warfare, China's Master Plan to Destroy America. And it was translated into English in 2002. So so it's a very well-known book um, in the Pentagon elsewhere. And it focuses on combining a long list of different types of warfare to take down the United States. Okay, two decades later, let's look at the list and compare. You can look at their recommendations, what China's done. Uh, the book recommends ecological warfare. Okay, damming the Mekong, which is what China's doing, is wrecking the ecology of people downstream. It's a massive way of putting pressure on Vietnam. Guerrilla warfare, another thing the book recommends. Well, China's got a maritime militia. That's like a maritime, a guerrilla force at sea. Financial warfare. This is what these BRI, Belt Road Initiative loans are, where if you don't make payment on time in a part of the world where uh, the likelihood of making money on these railways is slightly less, slightly more than zero, um, then you, uh, you wind up uh, having to give the Chinese a 99 lease on ports and things. It's bad news. 
another form of warfare that's recommended is trade sanctions. Well, that's what happened to Australia when Australia uh, thought it might be wise to figure out the origin of COVID. China just sanctioned their trade. Australia is incredibly trade dependent. Resource warfare, China's done that too. Remember the rare earths when China was boycotting exports of rare earths? Uh, drug warfare, I believe uh, Chinese sources are posting fentanyl to the United States. Fentanyl is a lethal drug. Only small quantities are necessary to kill large quantities of people. I guess this is the payback for the opium wars where we're getting this one coming our way. Network warfare is something that's recommended in this book. Well, we've had all this cyber stuff going on. And then there's diplomatic warfare that's recommended. Well, we've got wolf warrior diplomacy, where instead of being diplomatic, which is used to be a synonym for being polite, the Chinese are in everybody's faces. So the data's in. Even if we do not wish to be at war with China, China is at war not only with us, but with everyone. So with COVID, massive data threats, wolf warrior diplomacy, uh, Belt Road Initiative debt traps, lots of countries have concluded that China constitutes a threat to us all and has to be dealt with collectively. So it's bad news for the Chinese Communist Party, but it's a real problem for us as well. Fascinating. It'd be nice to hear some politicians. I guess we've got a few that have that have mentioned, you know, that we've got to prepare for war with China. But uh, your take is that we're already at war with China or China's already at war with us. Yeah, China's had a lot of uh, tactical wins. It, like they're still holding on to all of these islands in the South China Sea. Of course, they've killed off the fish population, which would be what actually makes the South China Sea valuable. Um, but they're setting themselves up for strategic failure. The uh, Continental Playbook requires taking people on sequentially, not alienating everyone at once, which is what Xi Jinping's done. China's going to lose, but we must avoid a Pyrrhic victory. Getting into a hot war with China is bad strategy. As China loses such a hot war, it'll escalate to using nuclear weapons because the Chinese Communist Party will have no other exit strategy because of its own domestic track record. Mao was an economic disaster and Xi Jinping is, is got his own problems. So we and our allies need to coordinate. A lethal threat is the best incentivizer for alliance systems and for building international institutions and to get a stronger security framework in Asia, more like the one that's very robust in Europe. But China's making all this both possible and necessary. So, Sally, your article is part of the ongoing Naval Institute American Sea Power Project. And uh, the first year of this project specifically has the goal to reestablish the need for naval power. What do you see as the roles of navies? The problem is not to reestablish, but to explain the need for naval power. The need exists. Just as we take oxygen for granted, Likewise, we take the benefits accruing from naval power for granted. Remove either one and the world falls apart. The problem for the Navy is the invisibility of negative objectives. The bad things that naval power prevents from occurring are invisible because the Navy prevents them from happening. So how does the Navy chalk up any wins if it's all invisible? Going back to my original comment, navies prevent piracy. If there were no navies, piracy would be rampant. These super ships are super targets. With nearly $1 billion in cargo, you imagine that would be allowed to go through uh, unimpeded if there weren't consequences for touching them. So this is a peacetime mission that navies, coast guards, 
allies. It's more than what our Navy does. It's about coordinating with everybody. And the global order that all of our prosperity is based on requires sharing the oceans as commons. It requires freedom of navigation across these oceans. It requires international law regulating our interaction so that we can minimize transaction costs. And navies are essential. Uh, the number one role of navies is keeping the commons open in peacetime. I know that people think it's war fighting. Yeah, it is for war fighting. You've got to be able to do that or the uh, threat is not, the deterrence value is not there. But um, our Navy and our allies' navies and Coast Guards have got to be of sufficient size and power to deter others from making a serious attack on the commons. And the maintaining these forces is expensive. The alternative of war is far more expensive, like our own domestic police forces, really expensive, right? We got police forces all across the United States. They cost a lot of money. Uh, it would be far worse without them. Navies are simply part of the cost of living and prospering in this world. I, I want to go back for a second to uh, your point that uh, China was, you said, has had some tactical victories, but uh, is perhaps on on the verge of strategic mistake or a strategic blunder. And, um, you know, you said that normally the playbook for continental powers is to tackle, to take on one of the problem countries, one of the peripheral countries at a time and not to anger them all at the same time, right? All simultaneously. How, how do you see, and I, I asked this question because I was just uh, reading yesterday uh, about the Japanese defense minister and how uh, the, the, it's now for the first time in, in perhaps a long time, if ever, uh, Japan is publicly talking, their defense ministry is publicly talking about the importance of Taiwan to Japan's national security uh, and how the United States, you know, Japan will stand with the United States uh, to help defend Taiwan. So I'm curious how you see China making a blunder right now or mistake vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the, 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 the nations around it, around the South China Sea or the East China Sea. How, how is it making a mistake right now? Oh, it's tragic. China has benefited more than any other country from rejoining the family of nations and getting reinvolving itself in the maritime world. That's why its prosperity has taken off. And the reason it's doing the self-destructive things, I believe, is because the Chinese Communist Party wants to maintain a monopoly of power. That monopoly of power is justified by economic theories that it has rejected. And in an increasingly well-educated society, which it's got, it has trouble justifying that. And so in order to, China's sources of legitimacy, I mean, historically are based on, I think, three pillars. One is um, territorial integrity, another one, is prosperity, and another one um, is uh, has to do with um, prosperity, territorial integrity, and also um, moral rectitude. Well, the Communist Party can just throw away moral rectitude. That one's <laughs> right? That one's totally gone. The problem with prosperity is COVID's going to take them down, and um, they've closed down all of their their information. But I cannot imagine that the Delta variant is not wrecking them and Sinovac apparently doesn't work against most variants very well and I can't imagine it does well on, on Delta variant. So and also I believe they're not ex, uh, vaccinating every anyone over 60 i.e. I guess this is their way to get rid of their old 
people problem is just let them all die. But the issue is they don't have legitimacy to rule the Chinese Communist Party. So what do you do? You create a foreign threat and you unify people via nationalism. And that is exactly what they're doing. But nationalism is a really, really heady brew. It tends to cloud the judgment of people who drink too much. And we've seen nationalism play over the course of the 20th century has ugly results. So this is where we are with China. And it's a huge country. We cannot force them to reassess. The Chinese have to reassess themselves. So this is where think of organizing our allies and trying to keep this problem at a low simmer instead of uh, having it break out into a hot war anyway. So the teamwork approach for the United States, Japan, Vietnam, India, Australia, etc. Will do you think will apply enough pressure to to get the Chinese uh, Communist Party leadership to to reassess what they're doing, to reassess their uh, their goals and aims or or their strategy? No one knows, and I don't think the Chinese know what's going on. I'll give you my example: when Bo Xilai, who was Xi Jinping's competitor, who's now behind bars, so he would have been a guy who was totally in the know. Uh, If he had been Here's a guy who's totally in, in the know, it, and if he'd known enough, he wouldn't have been in town the day they arrested him, right? So you're asking me a question that people at the highest level of the Communist Party don't know the answer to. <laughs> I, I mean, it's true. However, the, the beauty of the maritime system is and, and containment, which is simply, if the Chinese can't behave, we will sanction them. We already have started. And you, this is called a global timeout from the uh, international order. And this is where the, the math part of my article that you weren't so keen on, about when you sanction people, it, it shaves off a percentage or two of growth per annum. Again, it's invisible because it's prevented growth. But this compounds over long periods of time. And then whatever your problem is, if you continue growing, the, the problem becomes relatively smaller. And I think that's, you're not going to solve China, you're going to manage China. And then they have to come to their own conclusions about how they want their society to operate. We can't make them make these decisions. We have to insulate ourselves from their bad decisions. Yeah, very good points. So you teach at the Naval War College. For our listeners who won't have the good fortune of taking your classes, what's the most important message you'd like to get across to sea service professionals? I was mulling this one over for quite a while, and I'm going to give you a very self-serving answer because I couldn't think of a better one. So for me, I've been working at the Naval War College for 20 years in the Strategy and Policy Department. It has been a transformative experience. Uh, I was educated when I arrived by a very senior group of faculty, now long retired, who provided me with a really superlative education that I have tried to share. And how do I share this? It's by writing. And the book that shares the most is called The Wars for Asia. In its preface, it lays out the concepts that we teach at the Strategy and Policy Department in order to analyze wars and foreign policy. I use this framework for all of my publications. For me, it's extraordinarily helpful. The subject matter of the book is the rise to power of the Chinese Communist Party, and Japan and Russia's role in its rise. It is about a long Chinese civil war running from the collapse of the Qing dynasty in 1911 
to the communist revolution against the nationalists in 1949, within a bitter regional war fought against Japan uh, between 1931 and 45, and within a global world war that caught our attention in 41, but then this morphs into a Cold War. And um, it, China currently constitutes an existential threat to the rules-based order. This book provides some information uh, for understanding China and a methodology to analyzing these sorts of problems generally. So that's what I have in, in what I've tried to do to, um, to preserve the, what I found so valuable, what I learned from my senior colleagues. Well, some of our listeners may not know intimately what the Naval War College is and, and where it fits in the, uh, the continuum or in the education piece of Navy and Marine Corps. Um, and I'm reminded that for the last week, I've been briefing Plebes and Bill as well on the relationship between the Naval Institute and the Naval War College, which is the Naval War College was created by a proceedings article written by Stephen B. Luce in the late 1800s. And uh, so the gorgeous building that you guys have on the campus there on the banks of the Narragansett that you can see as you come across Pell Bridge is called Luce Hall. And Stephen B. Luce was the first president of the Naval War College. So from the get-go, the Naval Institute and the Naval War College have enjoyed a special relationship. But what would you describe to maybe colleagues from other academic institutions is the mission of the Naval War College? Oh, the, the Naval War College is a national treasure. It is the only institution in our country that studies the prerequisites for and the strategic possibilities from naval power. And our country is the greatest naval power that there ever has been. And if you look at graduate programs across the United States, not a one has a program in naval history, zero. Anyone who studies that goes to the War Studies pro, uh, Department at King's College and or other places in Great Britain, because the British are not so out of it that they don't realize <laughs> that it uh, is important. Our country, I've made a case to you today, definitive one, why naval power is important. You go back to my the, the rule with all the numbers, that covers it. And yet we don't study this. We have people making foreign policy without a pre- Appreciating the geopolitical constraints and possibilities from being a maritime power. That's dangerous. The Naval War College, amen, has a campus in Washington so a lot of congressional staffers can come on in and get a good education. The Washington campus is an excellent um, campus to do this. And it's terribly important, but we're a tiny little place. And uh, now I get out and about more and do more public speaking, and I try to make these things clear because it's important for our foreign policy. What's also amazing um, that we have security studies all over the United States. None of them has an in-depth knowledge of naval power. Uh, okay, now we're missing a major instrument of national security by security programs. Explain that one to me. So the Naval War College is really important. And uh, ignorance of these sorts of things, if you're going to practice foreign policy, ignorance of these things, you, you, you are at your peril. 
Well, that reminds me, I got to tell this story because uh, I was the naval attache in Moscow about uh, 15 years ago. And I went through language training at the Foreign Service Institute with my uh, State Department colleagues, an amazing program, amazing school. And I really got to know and make friends with a a bunch of diplomats. Many of them are are now senior diplomats. And I huge respect for them. There was one one point with one, you know, one uh, point of friction with one of my State Department colleagues. He actually might have been USAID. But in our classroom, uh, our professor had said, you know, you can decorate this room as you wish. And so I had a, a poster um, of a Nimitz-class aircraft carrier from the bow on. A lot of our listeners will probably have seen this. It says 100,000 tons of diplomacy. Um, you know, and then there was another one that was four and a half acres of sovereign U.S. territory where it's needed, when it's needed, right? So I put these up, and then I, you know, my job was to uh, was to translate. So I had to, you know, figure out how to translate a hundred thousand tons of diplomacy. And so uh, one of uh, a State Department colleague was a little bit pissed off that um, you know this was this was becoming a, a you know a bit martial, right? Oh, no. And uh, and I and I said, well, you know, without that hundred thousand tons of diplomacy, you don't have much diplomacy. Right. That's the stick to your carrot. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, almost every other one of my State Department colleagues was like, yeah, man, I love your posters. Those are great. Right. But this one person was like, well, why do we have to get all military in here? It's like, well, you know, if you're going to be a successful diplomat, that naval power is really important to your diplomacy. Uh, and and I found that you know most of my State Department colleagues had a had a very in, you know um, inherent understanding of that, and and I did not find them to be the liberals that many people you know paint the uh, uh, the State Department with that with that brush a lot. But uh, you know it was pretty fascinating to um, to see. I also learned a lot of things uh, about you know this sort of zero sum mentality that your article brought out so well. I wish I'd read it before I'd gone to Russia because it helped explain a lot of the Russian behavior and attitudes that I saw. Your point about uh, how merit- how how continental powers look at the world, how they look at their security, how they try to create buffer zones, how they try to manage uh, the the nations around them one on one and bully against them uh, to get their way. Uh, to to things like that that I didn't understand while I was there was uh, other than um, you know sort of a a reflexive. Uh, um, you know, posture that that b- was born out of the Soviet mentality, uh, but the the Russians were were very cold to the idea of NATO uh, or to to the idea of uh, you know American naval presence uh, coming up close in in places like the Baltic or in places like the Western Northwestern Pacific. So your article explained a lot of in in hindsight explained a lot of the Russian behavior and attitude that I experienced when I was there as the naval attaché in the mid two thousands. I think if if you think about the rules-based world order, the reason it works is because it's win-win. Why would you, as a little country, ever join it if you just have this hegemonic power bossing you? The whole point Mm -hmm. is that small powers sign on with treaties that have provisos if they don't like things, uh, uh, and reservations, etc. So everybody signs on to the degree that they wish to sign on. And it makes it really powerful. Because what is the global order today is what everyone signed on to. And there are things that the United States has tried to foist on others that others aren't interested in. So it doesn't become part of it. 
and it makes it incredibly powerful because people are in it. But it depends on law enforcement. And that law enforcement, to me, it goes from the coast inland. And for Russia, its security mess is a real mess. Uh, it, there, it's a lawless place. It's always been a lawless place. And it's really easy to say, well, just impose the laws. Uh, it, it will go from the edges inland. And so rather than vilifying all these continental places, if you understand where its origins, its origins are from real security threats, and understanding it's about going from the coast inland, and the big jump inland, it was when the end of the coast Cold War, when you all of a sudden you get Eastern Europe much more into the maritime thing. And now we're having pushback from Poland and Hungary that want to do a more authoritarian event than the rest of the EU, and there will be much squabbling over that. But it's also understanding that, for instance, a position like Afghanistan is a really bad one for a maritime uh, global order. It, it's, uh, it's like the center of lawlessness. So we're going to have trouble in Afghanistan, regardless of what we do, just by its position. It's all about moving inland. And you've got India, which is very promising, and it, and or Japan and Korea. Those are the ways for us, for all of us, to improve our situation. And it takes um, generations to build laws. Think about uh, the Anglo world. It's the Magna Carta. It goes back a long, long time. It takes a while for laws to take hold. So these problems are not going to go away. Navy is going to be worth having for a long time, uh, et cetera. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Our guest today has been Professor Sally Payne from the Naval War College. Her article, The American Sea Power Project, uh, August edition, is called Maritime Solutions to Continental Conundrums. It appears in the August proceedings starting on pages 42, uh, sorry, 44 and 45. Uh, Sally, thanks for joining us today, and thank you for writing for Proceedings, and we look forward to having you in our pages in the future. No pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.